Hello and welcome to our next edition of the Rare Possessions Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Galetti, and with me is Jared Riddick. Glad to be here. We also have a special guest today, Stephen Harper, who's the probably the foremost mortal authority on the first vision. Uh, thanks for being with us. Thank you for that uh, <laughs> nice, uh, nice introduction. Well, we are going to be talking about, uh, I think this might be the record holder for the longest titled thing that we've done on the podcast. It's called In Relation yeah. to the Late Discovery of Ancient American Records by Orson Pratt. Well, it's actually even longer. It's called Interesting Account of Several oh. Remarkable Visions <laughs> and of the Late Discovery of Ancient American Records by O. Pratt, Minister of the Gospel. <laughs> okay, I stand corrected. He and his brother Parley were very verbose when it came to their titles. They sure were. Now, this was published in 1840, mm -hmm. in but uh, it goes over a lot of different history, including the first vision. Uh, Orson was about 28 years old, I think, when this was written, somewhere around there, because I think he was 23 years old in 1835 when he was called as an apostle. And so this would put him about 28 years old. Puts you into perspective about the things you've done in your life when you <laughs> think about humbling, that age. right? But um, so w what was this document supposed to be? We'll turn to Brother Harper. All right. <laughs> well, this is a missionary tract. This uh, is designed to introduce the gospel to the people of Scotland and really, frankly, around the world. It was not very long after it was published before this document was circulating all over Europe. There were copies in the South Pacific. Uh, members of the, the London Missionary Society had copies of it in the South Pacific even within just a few years. So it really... Uh, spanned the globe pretty quickly. It was designed by Orson to take the most important things about the restoration of the gospel and communicate them in a in a compelling way, and uh, really bear that witness. So, what exactly did this document serve us as modern day readers from a historical perspective? What was its impact? Why is this something we're even talking about? Well, the most significant impact, in my judgment, is what it does with the first vision. This is the first published account of the first vision, right? Before Joseph Smith himself publishes the vision in America, Orson publishes it in Europe. It's remarkable. We don't know everything about what Joseph was thinking about sharing the vision, but it looks to me like he was quite reticent to share it after he was rejected by the Methodist minister a few days after the vision itself. And I don't think that changed for well over a decade. So Joseph just kind of didn't share this with a whole lot of people right. broadly. That's what the evidence suggests. Uh, he seems to have held on to it himself. There's no evidence even in his mother's memoir that his mom knew about it at the time. No evidence from his family that they knew about it at the time. So we know, of course, that he writes it in 1832, but even that seems to be suppressed. There's no evidence that he shares the 1832 account, even with people like John Whitmer and Oliver Cowdery, who were tasked with keeping the history. But he obviously shares it with Orson while they're, they cross paths in the Delaware River Valley somewhere, uh, while Joseph's going to Washington to lobby for redress of the saints' grievances, and Orson's on his way to Europe. Scotland. And while they're crossing paths there, it's clear that Joseph tells Orson the first vision. And it's not exactly clear how that goes, but Orson ends up with knowledge of a lot of the stuff that's in the 1832 account. And it's reflected in this terrific pamphlet. And a lot of what Orson writes is also 
It also prefigures Joseph's 1842 Wentworth letter. So this exchange, or what I've sometimes called a transaction, a transactive memory between Joseph Smith and Orson, is a very, very influential recording of the first vision. Very early and very influential. So I have some thoughts on this. It's it's kind of a it's a reflection back to something. I'm not sure if you remember that you did this, but back in 2008, you appeared in a documentary, a picturing Joseph documentary, where you said that the first vision was one of the greatest documented theophanies in the history of the world. Now, you've been studying this, I don't know, in the last 10 years at least, to come up with a book that we'll talk about in a little bit. What's your opinion of the first vision now? Is that still hold up? That's... Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And I say it that way on purpose, right? Um, I'm a big believer in the first vision. I'm thrilled with the remarkably rich historical record of it. And, you know, there are people who don't feel the same way I do about it, and they want to use that rich historical record like a weapon mm. against it, right? It's, it's the evidence that it didn't happen the way Joseph said. You talk about that in your book. Yeah. You know, uh, did you know there are several accounts of the first vision and they are not all the same, they are contradictory, they're anachronistic and so forth. So I, I uh, spin that in a positive way by saying, did you know it's the best documented vision of God that I know of in history? And that makes a big difference. You know, I present it to my students that way. They read all the accounts, they see themselves, see what the evidence is for themselves. And if you don't prejudice them, against it, they don't find the accounts to be, to impeach Joseph's testimony. Often it's just the opposite. I remember as a young priest, uh, we went to youth conference in Palmyra and there were, uh, I use the word, there were anti-Mormons outside the, uh, the local bookstore there. They were there to target the, 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 uh, the kids and with t-shirts that said, which first vision. I remember that very strongly, them handing out pamphlets yeah. to that, and we were looking at it, and we laughed it off. We didn't, I didn't know those multiple accounts then, but I remember just laughing at it anyway. But yeah, it's very interesting that to see that presentation now in, in classes that I didn't get when I was younger. Right. I, I was really grateful for it. <laughs> I was fortunate to get it, because uh, literally the scholar who wrote the book, Milton Backman, was my mentor in this stuff. Oh, wow. So, um, you know, I, I didn't realize that not everybody, not every undergraduate <laughs> was getting a real great drink of the First Vision accounts. I thought that was common knowledge uh, after he imparted it to me. But I now realize that he was ahead of his time and uh, a great scholar of the First Vision. And you feature him in, in, his, in your book with uh, Samuel Dodge, the compilation of the First Vision Scholarship. Yeah. yeah, he's done some of the most important First Vision scholarship there is. And if we, uh, the preface of that book says, you know, if we if we've advanced beyond them, it's because we're standing on the shoulders of giants, evoking that that quote and uh, that sentiment. So he and a lot of others, um, certainly Richard Bushman, James Allen, uh, others are in that league of first class, first vision scholars. To get back to the actual tract itself, um, there does seem to be sense in this essay uh, or in this article or whatever we're calling it at this point pamphlet pamphlet that that Orson Pratt doesn't separate the importance of the first vision with other visitations from other angels he talks a lot about the visit of Moroni and the coming forth of the book of mormon i'm kind of curious if this was a common way for these things to be talked about where it was the first vision separate from the book of mormon restoration or, or was were they kind of always talked together 
This is the way Joseph presents it himself. Okay. Uh, this is the same pattern he follows in his 1832 autobiography. It's the same pattern at a, at a much faster pace. Uh, it's the same story he tells in 1835 to Robert Matthias. And it's the same story he tells in his 1838-39 autobiography. So one thing that Orson does, though, is he tells it, he tells it faster than Joseph, typically, maybe with the exception of that 1835. But he tells it also with, I don't know how to describe it. Orson is a good writer. Yeah. Better than mm-hmm. Oliver, right? He sometimes bogs down in this pamphlet when he quotes too much Oliver. I noticed <laughs> yeah. that. Did you notice? <laughs> uh, so when Orson is left to himself, he's got a pretty good pace, and he tells a compelling story with a lot of detail, but not, not so much that it bogs it down. Now, Joseph, Joseph's um, manuscript history, the one that's excerpted in the Pearl of Great Price, that is a brilliant piece of storytelling as well. But Orson rivals it. Uh, partly by adding things in, richer detail, uh, more of what's going on internal, internally to Joseph than we even get from Joseph himself. So maybe that's embellishment, right? How does Orson know what he knows? Is it because Joseph told him all this stuff, or does he take some liberty with it? There's no way for us to know the answer to that question, but it comes out as a really terrific, compelling account. Yeah, and I, I often think about this as a tract because I know in when I was serving my mission in the South, we did talk about the first vision and we shared a pamphlet that the church had on that. And so I saw how the people there responded. And I know that some people, again, respond differently to it. But the way that he writes this, there's a line that I wanted to bring out that I think is part of why I think this was a very powerful tract. He's, he talks about Joseph and how he was pondering on his spirituality and yeah. things like that. And he says this line, Thought of resting his hopes of eternal life upon chance or uncertainties was more than he could endure. I love that line because it's hard to read that as a reader and not question your own relationship to these truths, these claims. And so I'm, I'm curious, do we have any history on how the people responded to this tract? I don't know of any specific evidence, okay. especially from the Scotland mission about how people responded to it. It's a great question. It's a good research question, but I have not myself <laughs> Sounds like a good master's undertaken thesis. <laughs> it. It sure would be. It sure would be. I don't know of any evidence. Okay. I wish I did. Yeah. It's very, yeah, it's a really interesting pamphlet. For me, some of the descriptive language he used, uh, some of the stuff reflected for the 1832 account was really moving. Just or does he expected to have seen the leaves and boughs of the trees consumed. And also he points out that Joseph saw the light but kept praying. Right. And that threw me out because I know how I would react to that. <laughs> I would have been freaking out by that point. But he just said, Joseph keeps going and keeps going with it. Yeah. And um, yeah, I just found this a tremendously powerful account. And I and now as I was going over through my notes, I was noticing what you said about being bogged down in some of Oliver's words. Just because <laughs> or, uh, Oliver does not break paragraphs as often as Orson does. So it stands out. So I want to ch- change gears a bit. Talk about your your recent book published through Oxford University Press, which is entitled First Vision, Memory, and Mormon Origins. Would you be able to talk a little bit about the inception for that book and what your, your kind of goals were going into that research and that, that writing? Yeah, that grew out of, um, of a seminar uh, from the summer of 2008 where Richard Bushman led a group of us at BYU talking about Joseph Smith and his critics. The premise of the seminar was, let's not worry too much about the critics anymore. Let's uh, minister to their victims. Let's 
let's prepare uh, materials for them that will help them come to terms with history as it was and so forth. So the assignment I drew out of that was to write about the first vision. And I'd been interested in the accounts before that. I'd learned about them, as I said, from Milton Backman. But that became the beginning of a pretty intensive research effort, and it's continued from then till now. I've done some other things along the way, but that's led to three different books so far on the first vision, another one in the works. Oh, really? Including this one that you mentioned, which is, it's the detached one. It's an academic one. It, mm-hmm. it begins by saying, a historian can't prove whether the vision happened or didn't happen, and that's not at stake in this book. But what is at stake is how did Joseph remember it? How did it even get recorded at all? What kind of uh, process led to the, the memories that we have? What difference do those memories make? How did they become a common or collective memory of the Latter-day Saints, which was by no means inevitable? Mm-hmm. And then how did they become a contested memory in the last half century or so? And what has that contest done to the shape uh, and reshaping of the collective memory of the Latter-day Saints? So it's about those questions. And Orson figures very large in the book. Beside Joseph Smith, he is the foremost, in technical terms, selector and relator of the first vision. Without Orson Pratt, it is safe to say it is very likely that the first vision would not be a collective memory of of all Latter-day Saints today. If Joseph Smith doesn't record it, then it's definitely not. But it would have gone into obscurity, potentially, if Orson hadn't repeated it and selected the version of it that we that has become standard and common to our memory. It might be surprising to listeners to know that even the church historian George A. Smith was telling a, a different version of it, a kind of clouded version, more like what Oliver Cowdery told or Joseph's mother told, or mm-hmm. William Smith, Joseph's brother. So was so was Brigham Young and John Taylor. They were telling kind of a generic version of angels appearing to Joseph and blending together the first vision and the later visits of Moroni. And that was common to do until Orson Pratt just kept repeating it, kept teaching it in uh, important settings until it took hold. That led to things like the canonization of the Pearl of Great Price mm-hmm. with the canonized account in it, right? And right at that time is when John Taylor, 1880, starts to tell the story as we now have it in our collective memory. So without Orson doing that memory work, it's likely that it would not be the founding story of the restoration that we tell today. I'm very excited to see what we do with this next April conference. The time of recording conference was uh, two days ago. Yeah. And to see, you might need to have an addendum to the, uh, to the book to see what the, the bicentennial <laughs> reflection is. Yeah, it will be interesting. So what is your new, new book coming out? Uh, is it too soon to talk about that? Or? No, no, it's not. Uh, probably not till 2021. Yeah, that's when it's slated for publication. So it'll be a shorter one, a little more faster paced. But uh, yeah, I hope it'll be useful. I think it will be. We'll include a book, uh, a link, uh, an Amazon link to Brother Harper's book in the description below. Yeah. So let's do a reading of, we're going to break this up into three parts. Mm-hmm. And so this is going to be part one of three. And so we'll do a reading of that part of the pamphlet and stay tuned for episodes two and three, which we'll talk about more. See you later. interesting account of several remarkable visions and of the late discovery of ancient American records by Orson Pratt, Minister of the Gospel.
Mr. Joseph Smith Jr., who made the following important discovery, was born in the town of Sharon, Windsor County, Vermont, on the 23rd of December, A.D. 1805. When 10 years old, his parents, with their family, moved to Palmyra, New York, in the vicinity of which he resided for about 11 years, the latter part in the town of Manchester. Cultivating the earth for a livelihood was his occupation, in which he employed the most of his time. His advantages for acquiring literary knowledge were exceedingly small, hence his education was limited to a slight acquaintance with two or three of the common branches of learning. He could read without much difficulty and write a very imperfect hand, and had a very limited understanding of the ground rules of arithmetic. These were his highest and only attainments, while the rest of those branches so universally taught in the common schools throughout the United States were entirely unknown to him. When somewhere about 14 or 15 years old, he began seriously to reflect upon the necessity of being prepared for a future state of existence, but how or in what way to prepare himself was a question as yet undetermined in his own mind. He perceived that it was a question of infinite importance and that the salvation of his soul depended upon a correct understanding of the same. He saw that if he understood not the way, it would be improbable to walk in it except by chance, and the thought of resting his hopes of eternal life upon chance or uncertainties was more than he could endure. If he went to the religious denominations to seek information, each one pointed to its particular tenets, saying, This is the way, walk ye in it, while at the same time the doctrines of each were, in many respects, in direct opposition to one another. It also occurred to his mind that God was not the author of but one doctrine, and therefore could not acknowledge but one denomination as his church, and that such denomination must be a people who believe and teach that one doctrine, whatever it may be, and build upon the same, and then reflected upon the immense number of doctrines now in the world, which had given rise to many hundreds of different denominations. The great question to be decided in his mind was, if any one of these denominations be the Church of Christ, which one is it? Until he could become satisfied in relation to this question, he could not rest contented. To trust to the decisions of fallible men and build his hopes upon the same without any certainty and knowledge of his own would not satisfy the anxious desires that pervaded his breast. To decide without any positive and definitive evidence on which he could rely upon a subject involving the future welfare of his soul was revolting to his feelings. The only alternative that seemed to be left him was to read the scriptures and endeavor to follow their directions. He accordingly commenced pursuing the sacred pages of the Bible, with sincerity, believing the things that he read. His mind soon caught hold of the following passage. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. James chapter 1 verse 5. From this promise he learned that it was the privilege of all men to ask God for wisdom, with the sure and certain expectation of receiving liberally, without being upbraided for so doing. This was cheering information to him, tidings that gave him great joy. It was like a light shining forth in a dark place to guide him to the path in which he should walk. He now saw that if he inquired of God, there was not only a possibility, but a probability, yea, more a certainty, that he should obtain a knowledge which of all the doctrines was the doctrine of Christ and which of all the churches was the church of Christ. He therefore retired to a secret place in a grove, but a short distance from his father's house, and knelt down and began to call upon the Lord. At first he was severely tempted by the powers of darkness, which endeavored to overcome him. 
but he continued to seek for deliverance until darkness gave way from his mind, and he was enabled to pray in fervency of the Spirit and in faith. And while thus pouring out his soul, anxiously desiring an answer from God, he at length saw a very bright and glorious light in the heavens above, which at first seemed to be at a considerable distance. He continued praying, while the light appeared to be gradually descending towards him, and as it drew nearer, it increased in brightness and magnitude, so that by the time that it reached the tops of the trees, the whole wilderness for some distance around was illuminated in a most glorious and brilliant manner. He expected to have seen the leaves and boughs of the trees consumed as soon as the light came in contact with them. But, perceiving that it did not produce that effect, he was encouraged with the hopes of being able to endure its presence. It continued descending slowly until it rested upon the earth, and he was enveloped in the midst of it. When it first came upon him, it produced a particular sensation throughout his whole system, and his mind was caught away from the natural objects with which he was surrounded. And he was enwrapped in a heavenly vision, and saw two glorious personages who exactly resembled each other in their figures or likeness. He was informed that his sins were forgiven. He was also informed upon the subjects which had for some time previously agitated his mind, vis-a-vis that the religious denominations were believing in incorrect doctrines, and consequently that none of them was acknowledged of God and his church and kingdom. And he was expressly commanded to go not after them, and he received a promise that the true doctrine, the fullness of the gospel, should, at some future time, be made known to him, after which the vision withdrew, leaving his mind in a state of calmness and peace, indescribable. Sometime after having received this glorious manifestation, being young, he was again entangled in the vanities of the world, of which he afterwards sincerely and truly repented. And it pleased God, on the evening of the 21st of September, A.D. 1823, to again hear his prayers. For he had retired to rest, as usual, only that his mind was drawn out in fervent prayer, and his soul was filled with the most earnest desire to communicate with some kind of messenger who would communicate to him the desired information of his acceptance with God, and also unfold the principles of the doctrine of Christ according to the promise which he had received in the former vision. While he thus continued to pour out his desires before the Father of all good, endeavoring to exercise faith in his precious promises, on a sudden, a light like that of day, only of a purer and far more glorious appearance and brightness, burst into the room. Indeed, the first sight was as though the house was filled with consuming fire. This sudden appearance of a light so bright, as must naturally be expected, occasioned a shock or sensation visible to the extremities of the body. It was, however, followed with a calmness and serenity of mind, and an overwhelming rapture of joy that surpassed understanding, and in a moment, a personage stood before him. Notwithstanding the brightness of the light which previously illuminated the room, yet there seemed to be an additional glory surrounding or accompanying this personage, which shone with an increased degree of brilliancy, of which he was in the midst. And though his countenance was as lightning, yet it was of a pleasing, innocent, and glorious appearance, so much so that every fear was banished from his heart, and nothing but calmness pervaded the soul. The stature of this personage was a little above the common size of men in this age. His garment was perfectly white, and had the appearance of being without seam. This glorious being declared himself to be an angel of God, sent forth by commandment to communicate to him that his sins were forgiven, and that his prayers were heard, and also to bring the joyful tidings that the covenant which God made with ancient Israel concerning their posterity was at hand to be fulfilled. 
that the great preparatory work for the second coming of the Messiah was speedily to commence, that the time was at hand for the gospel in its fullness to be preached in power unto all nations, that a people might be prepared with faith and righteousness for the millennial reign of universal peace and joy. He was informed that he was called and chosen to be an instrument in the hands of God to bring about some of his marvelous purposes in this glorious dispensation. It was also made manifest to him that the American Indians were a remnant of Israel, that when they first emigrated to America, they were an enlightened people, possessing a knowledge of the true God, enjoying his favor and peculiar blessings from his hand, that the prophets and inspired writers among them were required to keep a sacred history of the most important events transpiring among them, which history was handed down for many generations, till at length they fell into great wickedness. The most part of them were destroyed, and the records, by commandment of God to one of the last prophets among them, were safely deposited to preserve them from the hands of the wicked who sought to destroy them. He was informed that these records contained many sacred revelations pertaining to the gospel of the kingdom, as well as prophecies relating to the great events of the last days, and to fulfill his promise to the ancients who wrote the records, and to accomplish his purposes in the restitution of their children, etc. They were to come forth to the knowledge of the people. If faithful, he was to be the instrument who should be thus highly favored in bringing these sacred things to light, at the same time being expressly informed that it must be done with an eye single to the glory of God, that no one could be entrusted with those sacred writings who should endeavor to aggrandize himself by converting sacred things to unrighteous and speculative purposes. After giving him many instructions concerning things past and to come, which would be foreign to our purpose to mention here, he disappeared, and the light and glory of God withdrew, leaving his mind in perfect peace, while a calmness and serenity indescribable pervaded the soul. But before morning, the vision was twice renewed, instructing him further and still further concerning the great work of God about to be performed on the earth. In the morning, he went out to his labor as usual, but soon the vision was renewed. The angel again appeared, and having been informed by the previous vision of the night concerning the place where those records were deposited, he was instructed to go immediately and view them. Accordingly, he repaired to the place, a brief description of which shall be given, in the words of a gentleman by the name of Oliver Cowdery, who has visited the spot. Quote, As you pass on the mail road from Palmyra, Wayne County, to Canandaigua, Ontario County, New York, before arriving at the little village of Manchester, say, from three to four, or about four miles from Palmyra, you pass a large hill on the east side of the road. Why I say large is because it is as large, perhaps, as any in that country. The north end rises quite suddenly until it assumes a level with the more southerly extremity, and I think, I may say, an elevation higher than at the south, a short distance, say half or three-fourths of a mile. As you pass towards Canandaigua, it lessens gradually until the surface assumes its common level, or is broken by other smaller hills or ridges, watercourses, and ravines. I think I am justified in saying that this is the highest hill for some distance around, and I am certain that its appearance, as it rises so suddenly from a plain on the north, must attract the notice of the traveler as he passes by. The north end, which has been described as rising suddenly from the plain, forms a promontory without timber, but covered with grass. As you pass to the south, you soon come to scattering timber, the surface having been cleared by art or wind, and a short distance further left, you are surrounded with the common forest of the country. It is necessary to observe that even the part cleared was only occupied for pasturage, 
its steep ascent and narrow summit not admitting the plow or the husbandman with any degree of ease or profit. It was at the second mentioned place where the record was found to be deposited on the west side of the hill, not far from the top down its side. When myself visited the place in the year 1830, there were several trees standing, enough to cause a shade in summer, but not so much as to prevent the surface being covered with grass, which was also the case when the record was first found. How far below the surface these records were anciently placed I am unable to say, but from the fact that they had been some 1400 years buried, and that, too, on the side of a hill so steep, one is ready to conclude that they were some feet below, as the earth would naturally wear more or less in that length of time. But they being placed toward the top of the hill, the ground would not remove as much as two-thirds, perhaps. Another circumstance would prevent a wearing of the earth, in all probability, as soon as timber had the time to grow, the hill was covered, and the roots of the same would hold the surface. However, on this point, I shall leave every man to draw his own conclusion and form his own speculation. But suffice to say, a hole of sufficient depth was dug. At the bottom of this was laid a stone of suitable size, the upper surface being smooth. At each edge was placed a large quantity of cement, and into this cement, at the four edges of this stone, were placed erect four others, their bottom edges resting in the cement at the four edges of the first stone. The four last named, when placed erect, formed a box. The corners, or where the edges of the four came in contact, were also cemented so firmly that the moisture from without was prevented from entering. It is to be observed also that the inner surfaces of the four erect or side stones were smooth. This box was sufficiently large to admit a breastplate, such as was used by the ancients to defend the chest, etc., from the arrows and weapons of their enemy. From the bottom of the box, or from the breastplate, arose three small pillars, composed of the same description of cement used on the edges, and upon these three pillars were placed the records. This box, containing the records, was covered with another stone, the bottom surface being flat and the upper crowning. When it was first visited by Mr. Smith on the morning of the 22nd of December, 1823, as part of the crowning stone was visible above the surface, while the edges were concealed by the soil and grass. From which circumstances it may have been, that however deep this box may have been placed at first, the time had been sufficient to wear the earth, so that it was easily discovered when once directed, and yet not enough to make a perceivable difference to the passer-by. After arriving at the repository, a little exertion in removing the soil from the edges of the top of the box, and a light pry, brought to his natural vision its contents. While viewing and contemplating this sacred treasure, and wonder with astonishment, behold, the angel of the Lord who had previously visited him again stood in his presence, and his soul was again enlightened as it was the evening before, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and the heavens were opened and the glory of the Lord shone round about and rested upon him. While he thus stood gazing and admiring, the angel said, Look. And as he thus spake, he beheld the prince of darkness, surrounded by his innumerable train of associates. All this passed before him, and the heavenly messenger said, All this is shown the good and the evil, the holy and impure, the glory of God and the power of darkness, that you may know hereafter the two powers and never be influenced or overcome by that wicked one. Behold, whatsoever enticeth and leadeth to good and to do good is of God, and whatsoever doth not 
is of that wicked one. It is he that filleth the hearts of men with evil, to walk in darkness and blaspheme God. And you may learn from henceforth that his ways are to destruction, but the way of holiness is peace and rest. You cannot at this time obtain this record, for the commandment of God is strict. And if ever these sacred things are obtained, they must be by prayer and faithfulness in obeying the Lord. They are not deposited here for the sake of accumulating gain and wealth for the glory of this world. They were sealed by the prayer of faith, and because of the knowledge which they contain, they are of no worth among the children of men, only for their knowledge. On them is contained the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as it was given to his people on this land. And when it shall be brought forth by the power of God, it shall be carried to the Gentiles, of whom many will receive it. And after will the seed of Israel be brought into the fold of their Redeemer, by obeying it also. Those who kept the commandments of the Lord on this land desired this at his hand, and through the prayer of faith obtained the promise that if their descendants should transgress and fall away, that a record should be kept in the last days come to their children. These things are sacred and must be kept so, for the promise of the Lord concerning them must be fulfilled. No man can obtain them if his heart is impure, because they contain that which is sacred. By them will the Lord work a great and marvelous work. The wisdom of the wise shall become as naught, and the understanding of the prudent shall be hid. And because the power of God shall be displayed, those who profess to know the truth, but walk in deceit, shall tremble with anger. But with signs and wonders, with gifts and with healings, with the manifestations of the power of God, and with the Holy Ghost, shall the hearts of the faithful be comforted. You have now beheld the power of God manifested, and the power of Satan. You see that there is nothing desirable in the works of darkness, that they cannot bring happiness, that those who are overcome therewith are miserable, while, on the other hand, the righteous are blessed with a place in the kingdom of God, where joy unspeakable surrounds them. There they rest beyond the power of the enemy of truth, where no evil can disturb them. The glory of God crowns them, and they continually feast upon his goodness and enjoy his smiles. Behold, notwithstanding, you have seen this great display of power by which you may ever be able to detect the evil one. Yet, I give unto you another sign. And when it comes to pass, then know that the Lord is God, and that he will fulfill his purposes, and that the knowledge which this record contains will go to every nation and kindred and tongue and people under the whole heaven. This is the sign when these things begin to be known, that is, when it is known that the Lord has shown you these things, the workers of iniquity will seek your overthrow. They will circulate falsehoods to destroy your reputation, and also will seek to take your life. But remember this, if you are faithful, and shall hereafter continue to keep the commandments of the Lord, you shall be preserved to bring these things forth. For in due time, he will give you a commandment to come and take them. When they are interpreted, the Lord will give the holy priesthood to some, and they shall begin to proclaim this gospel and baptize by water. And after that, they shall have power to give the Holy Ghost by the laying on of their hands. Then will persecutions rage more and more, for the iniquities of men shall be revealed, and those who are not built upon the rock will seek to overthrow the church. But it will increase the more opposed and spread farther and farther, increasing in knowledge, till they shall be sanctified, and receive an inheritance where the glory of God will rest upon them. And when this takes place, and all things are prepared, 
the ten tribes of Israel will be revealed in the north country, whither they have been for a long season. And when this is fulfilled, will be brought to pass that saying of the prophet, And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. But, notwithstanding the workers of iniquity shall seek your destruction, the arm of the Lord will be extended, and you will be borne off conqueror if you keep all his commandments. Your name shall be known among the nations, for the work which the Lord will perform by your hands shall cause the righteous to rejoice and the wicked to rage. With the one it shall be had in honor, and with the other in reproach. Yet with these it shall be a terror, because of the great and marvelous work which shall follow the coming forth of this fullness of the gospel. Now, go thy way, remembering what the Lord has done for thee, and be diligent in keeping his commandments, and he will deliver thee from temptations and all the arts and devices of the wicked one. Forget not to pray, that thy mind may become strong, that when he shall manifest unto thee, thou mayest have power to escape the evil and obtain these precious things. End quote. We here remark that the above quotation is an extract from a letter written by Elder Oliver Cowdery, which was published in one of the numbers of the Latter-day Saints Messenger and Advocate. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rare Possessions Podcast. This has been an interesting account of several remarkable visions and the late discovery of ancient American records by Orson Pratt. This is part one of three. We encourage you to stay tuned and subscribe to the Rare Possessions podcast to hear the next two sections of this incredible document. Thank you again for listening to the Rare Possessions podcast from Book of Mormon Central.